verses 1 through 7, and the passage reads, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priest, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. And remember, they didn't just depart from Jerusalem, they were taken captive from Jerusalem. Verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elasah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Without question, there have been several events that have occurred in our cities, and not just in our city, but in cities throughout this nation, in cities uh, throughout this world, as a matter of fact, which always have a, a potential of turning these places upside down. It seemed like, you know, uh, it happened once, and then we, once when we think that it's all over it, here it goes again. Whether you're talking about police killing individuals, or whether you're talking about individuals killing the police. Whether you speak of how such a mess some of our cities are in, from drinking water with pipes with lead in it, to a lack of good education, to housing that is crumbling all over the place. It seems like our nation is in a mess. But in the midst of all of this, I can imagine uh, the children of Israel who had been taken captive to Babylon, that they themselves are thinking, what a mess that we're in, uh, what a, a messy city that we are part of, because really they were not from there. And in the midst of all that, that God, he speaks a word here in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. In the midst of all the discouragements, in the midst of all the dark spirits that prevail, God tells his children, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Believers are commanded to seek the welfare of the city where they reside. We are called as followers of Jesus Christ to seek the welfare 
And again, we must remember that this is not an option, but it is a command if you are a believer. The question is, how do we as believers seek, as disciples of Jesus Christ, look for the welfare of the city? Is this uh, the act of trying to find uh, where is the welfare? Where can I get it? For that matter, what is welfare? Is it a believer who's looking for welfare, which means that you're looking for public assistance? Does it mean that as a believer, you're looking for food stamps? You're looking for discount on housing? What does God mean when he says to seek, to look for, or to search for the welfare of the city? Well, the meaning of the word welfare. The word welfare, it comes from the Hebrew. And that Hebrew word is shalom. Shalom. Shalom means peace, wholeness, healthiness, security, and or a sense of stability and soundness. You may have heard this word shalom before, used as a greeting among Jews. They may say to one another, shalom. You can imagine if you ever go to Israel, that one of the things that when you say hello to someone will be shalom. When you say goodbye to someone, you will also say shalom. It's kind of like what they say in Hawaii. When you greet someone in Hawaiian, you always typically say what? You say Aloha. And when you say goodbye, you say what? You say aloha, right? So shalom is kind of the same way. But shalom, uh, with this word, uh, we are praying, wishing, or hoping for peace to come upon the person to whom we are wishing shalom upon. We're praying for their wholeness. Not a fragmented lifestyle as they deal with the challenges of the day. But this idea of shalom or wholeness is not without religious connotations. A person's wholeness also includes a relationship with the Lord. If you want someone to be whole, if you want a person to experience shalom, then you are hoping that they would be whole, not only in how they live their life, but also in how they relate to the Lord God himself. In fact, scholar Amy Sherman, for which I had a, uh, a big disagreement with about a couple of things uh, a couple of years ago, and in fact I told her, uh, she said that uh, the idea of shalom is also what we will experience in heaven. This wholeness, what we were made up to be, right? That we go to this place uh, not only in the image of God, but also in how God has created our bodies and, and, and really the backdrop of our whole purpose for existence. And for that, I agree with her. So amen to you, Sister Amy. But for some, however, 
this idea of shalom is nothing more than a stock. Hello and goodbye. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Aloha, aloha. Hello, goodbye. It all means the same to you. But as God's people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we also seek the welfare, the peace, the wholeness, or the soundness, and here it is, of our city. But again, does this command refer to looking for peace? Where can I find shalom? Is it on that corner? Is it on that corner? Or do we look for, uh, uh, for, for peaceful streets or parks throughout the city? Do we find people in shalom that are giving high fives instead of uh, shooting with their 45s? We should look for, uh, as people of God, we should look for people of peace and find ways to encourage them in their pursuit for shalom in, his, in the city. So we should look for these things. Because in looking for shalom and looking for wholeness and looking for peace uh, as people of God, we then have a bridge for them to Jesus Christ. But the idea of seeking the welfare or the peace of our cities means we need to find ways to make it peaceful. And it begins with us. It begins with us. Often we complain about the lack of peace or the lack of shalom in our cities, don't we? We complain without having any plan for change or without speaking up. And then we hear bad news after bad news, so we complain again about how worse things have gotten in our city. So we complain and we complain some more. We complain about our neighbors, don't we? We complain about our neighborhoods. We complain about our mayors. We complain about our governors. And, and don't let us forget uh, those who run our nation. Complain about them. And then what do we get in return? They complain about us. So we end up more disappointed with more divisions and more unrest as intolerance increases and divisions and the divide becomes wider and wider to the point it becomes us versus them. And now without question, there are times that we must challenge the system. Should we not? We should speak up. We should complain about anything that is unjust, ungodly, uh, right? Uh, but to what end? There is a point in time which we should realize that whatever we've been doing previously, all of our complaints, we must come to a conclusion that it is not working. Our methods from yesteryear are, are no longer effective. They are no longer accomplishing everything uh, that we thought that they should. And in fact, if we were really thoughtful about the process, one thing that we would realize is that those methods and processes from yesteryear, they really didn't work that well anyway. Because oftentimes, the things that were put into place from yesteryear, they only benefited a few. Or some got a lot and others got just a little bit. 
So those methods, those processes, they worked only marginally because uh, they were only for those privileged few or only meant for a particular time. And what I'm thinking about, if you're asking me, what are you thinking about? What are you talking about? I'm thinking about housing, thinking about unions, thinking about laws, policies, schools, employment, shopping at the grocery store, and even simply drinking water at the water fountain. Every institution, regardless of purpose, has some type of systemic flaw built into its process. I'll say that again. Every institution, regardless of purpose, has some type of systemic flaw built into the process, some more than others. Right? We would hope that the church is not like that. But we know that even within the church, there can be prejudices. And we could say that you know, if our church was all black, then we would have it made. Right? And then what happens is you go uh, to an all-black church, then you discover, well, I don't like that church because within the church there's cliques. Right? I don't like this person or I don't like that group of people. You see, there's something systemic, and that uh, systemic nature of those flaws, it is because of sin itself. So what do we do? And what kind of hope does a believer have in the midst of such impossible odds? We are called to do as the Lord commanded. We are called to do as the Lord has commanded us. As I was uh, praying through this message, I was sitting downtown and noticed an unusually high presence of police officers everywhere, bunched on corners in here. It was earlier in the day. And at first I thought that there was going to be a parade outside somewhere. You know, I just you know, didn't put two and two together, you know. And uh, then finally it was pointed out to me that um, uh, they were preparing for a possible massive protest in the city of Chicago. So the idea of how do you deal with the communities that are suffering more, uh, well, well, let's just add more police officers and that will fix it. Well, how do you deal with the immorality or the unethical nature within our political system? Then what we'll do is we'll pass more laws. But man, we already know that we have uh, more laws than what we can already deal with. Amen? And I tell you, of all the laws that we've had, if they have not worked yet, trust me, they're not going to work to the very heart of people, and that's where the issue is. The issue is with the heart of individuals. So how could it be possible for us to live in a godly and responsible manner, given the tenor and tone of our society, and with all the divisions that are so evident from national politics, race, abuse, integrity, and immorality. In fact, it once felt like if you needed to get something done, and you needed to get something accomplished, you need to be unethical. Or, uh, if you're not unethical, you needed to know someone who's unethical. 
Man, I've seen it, and I've seen it time and, and, and time again. I've seen it over and over again. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you must ask yourself whether or not if you're going to participate. You must either stand up or stand out. I recall one time I had shared with you that one time, just as a, a lonely musician, a lonely musician, that uh, the leader of this particular performance that I was a part of told me this. He says, look, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pay you $1,000 for this gig. I think it was a little bit more. I'm like, wow! $1,000 for, for this? I'm like, okay, sure. But then he says, but what I'm going to do is I want you to give me back 500. I said, well, just, just give me, just give me 500. I'll just take, just give me, give me what I, I'm worth. I thought a thousand dollars was great. Just give me what I'm worth. I'm like, why do you want to give me a thousand? I'm just, I'm just so naive, right? I'm like, why do you want to give me a thousand dollars? You want me to give you? And, and, I, and I'm talking to this to him, and I'm, and then, then, then everything starts to click. They're like, well, then he said, he said, well, you know. And then I looked at him and I said, what do you think I said? I didn't say okay. I said, no. I said, uh-uh, no, 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 no. I don't want any part of that. And if this is what you all are doing up in here, I'm out of here. Because I am not willing to go to jail. Don't want to be a part of laundering money. But I do know someone who was part of that group who said yes. And when they said yes, I saw them being elevated. They went from you know, just being a lonely, lowly musician to all, all of a sudden they were the contractor's assistant. You see, in order to make it in certain places in society, oftentimes uh, there are corruptible and immoral practices that you know that are part of the system. And you must make it up in your mind today, how will I respond to corruption and immorality? And we know this is the case when even we think about voting and we ask ourselves, uh, well, which candidate shall I vote for? Well, I know both of them are corrupt, so I'm going to vote for the least corrupt of the two. See, that's how we know that the system has a problem. But yet, we are to seek the welfare or the peace of our cities and our nation. And remember, I'm not talking about the buildings. I'm not talking about the streets, per se. But instead, I'm referring to the people who live next to you. And again, your neighbors, your, your aldermen, your mayors, your governor, the police, uh, the president, our lawyers, our teachers, our garbage men, everyone. We're talking about people. Now, else you think I'm going off the rails here. In our passage here in Jeremiah 29, we must understand the background of this passage. At one point in time, the nation of Israel, as some of you are aware of, that they were taken captive by the Babylonians. In this case, specifically Judah, the southern region of all Israel. And we recalled how the northern uh, 
the northern portion had already been taken captive by Assyria, but now the southern portion had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And I'm reading here in Jeremiah chapter 25, starting in verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Now I may do a little skipping here, so bear with me. The word of the, that, the word that came to Jeremiah, verse 2, was Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, verse 3. For 23 years, moving on, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants the prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore... Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north. Now, he's not talking about Israel. He's not talking about the northern tribes. He's talking about every enemy of theirs that come from the north to go south to take them captive, which means that also includes their neighbors that were to the east of them. Because in order to get to them, to get to the east, they had to go north and then come south from, from the northerly uh, direction. He says, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Look at that. God is calling Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, his servant. Why? Because he is doing the bidding of the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. So the Lord repeatedly warned the Hebrews about sin and falling after false gods. But did they listen? The answer is no. In fact, they went one step further by ignoring the voice of God. They've ever done that before. Well, I'm going to do everything that I hear in church today. And then you walk right out and do everything opposite what you heard in church today. For some of them, they did not believe that the Lord would not discipline them. Because they figured that God was just long-suffering. They figured that he was just, uh, just uh, maybe he's not even existing but, you know, he's uh, letting us off the hook this long, so let's just go ahead and ignore him. You see, sin has a propensity to cause us to think more highly of ourselves than we should. But at the same time, sin diminishes the power of God in our minds. So we must think of ourselves with sobriety. So we are to seek the shalom or the welfare of our city. And then uh, he says here in Jeremiah 29, 7, we are to pray on behalf of our city. You want to see things change in the city? You want to see things 
turn in the other direction, then pray. When was the last time you prayed for your city? When was the last time you prayed for your mayor by name or your alderman? When was the last time you prayed for your governor or your president or your senator or your congressman? When was the last time that you prayed for those individuals? When was the last time you prayed for those folks who are standing out on the corner and you know they're up to no good? We must pray on behalf of our city. Pagan leaders often represent pagan-minded citizens. Pagan leaders often represent pagan-minded citizens. Because the leaders of the nation of Babylon were pagan, most of their citizens were also pagan and did not have a faith in the Lord. And the Lord I'm speaking of is Yahweh. Especially understand this with the backdrop of knowing the Babylonians had come uh, to destroy Israel and greatly harm and remove all of their leaders. Now, I know we're reading a lot of, of, of passages here, but we, we, we must dig into here. Let's look and see what Babylon did. Look, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading now. Listen to this. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem. So Jeremiah the prophet said that it was going to happen, and here it is happening, and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. And basically siege works are, you know, they had a walls going up, so they start throwing uh, uh, garbage and refuse at the bottom of, of, of those walls so they can eventually climb up and climb over the top. So they built siege works all around it. Verse 2. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then a breach was made in the city. In other words, they were finally able to get through. And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls. Verse 5, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. So in other words, they took the king of Israel at that time and they bound him and they brought his sons before him. And then they killed all of his sons while he was watching. And right after the last one had died, they put out the eyes of the king. So the last image he would ever see with his eyes was the death of his children. That is brutal. That is nasty. So the Israelites, you see, they had every reason to view the Babylonians as their, as their enemies. They had destroyed their nation. They had put out the eyes of the king. They had killed the king's son. They had taken everybody, most people captive. Who wouldn't want to rebel against people like that? And if that were not enough, 
look at what else they did in Jerusalem. 2 Kings 25, verse 8, and 8 through 10. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, if I got that right, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with uh, the captain of the God broke down the walls around Jerusalem. So they went to the big church. And they burned the church down to the ground. They dismantled everything. And the walls that they had for safety, that they took it all apart. And imagine having all this in your brain and then you're hearing the prophet Jeremiah tell you, but seek the welfare of the city. Yet all these folks who are against you spiritually, all these folks who are against you physically, all these folks who are killing your folks, and now you come as a man of God and say it to seek the welfare of the city because the city they were living in was in Babylon. I can imagine them hating them. Imagine how difficult it is for the believers to hear this word. Without question, there may be some who are not trying to hear those instructions. You know what? Uh, uh, prophet Jeremiah ain't even trying to hear what you're saying to me today. Not even trying to hear that. Because in other words, you're saying by uh, praying for them that you want us to forget and to forgive and put it all behind us. How can I, of good conscience, pray for those who oppose me and have killed my people? But God told them that they needed to pray for that nation, pray for those same people who treated them unfairly. Have you ever had to pray for someone who treated you badly? Have you ever had to pray for someone that you know that they were unjust? And if they had your way, if they had their way, that they would have probably destroyed your entire life? Maybe you haven't because either no one has ever treated you badly. Or maybe you just simply refuse to pray for them in the first place. So if you began to pray for them, how much strength and courage did it take for you to open your mouth? I admit to you, brothers and sisters, there was someone that in my life that I did not, I mean, I did not like, and the Lord was telling me over and over again to pray for them, to pray for them, to pray for them. And I went for months, and I'm going to be honest with you, I went for like a year. And I said, I would say, okay, Lord, but inside my heart, I say, ain't. And then the Lord kept putting pressure on me, and I realized it's something I had to do. And I remember the first a couple of times I tried to go down, and I tried to go down, and I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to be obedient. And I, and I tried opening my mouth, and I couldn't even mention their name. I could not mention their name, because I just, honestly, I just hated them. 
because they didn't treat me right. Treat other people right. And I hated them. But over time, as I kept trying, God loosed my mouth and my tongue that eventually I was able to pray for them. Praying for God's best. So when you think about your city, some of you may have been victims of a crime in your city. How do you pray for those that have robbed you, stolen from you, or abused you? How, how do you pray? How do you form the words out of your mouth to begin to pray? How could we ever do it? But look at what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 44. Jesus says, Jesus. Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Look at what Paul says. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. You know, this, listen, you may not want to hear this. That means for mayors who cover stuff up. Presidents who say ungodly things that I know some have vowed, I'm not going to even mention his name. That goes for uh, the police officers who done unjustly or crooked lawyers or crooked preachers and priests or a spouse a husband or a wife. Jesus says, not me, Jesus. He says, love your who? Enemies. And do what for those who persecute you? You see, it's natural to hate those who hate us. That's, not, that's the easy. You're talking about the easy button? That's the easy button. It's of the flesh not to pray for those who have done us wrong. Brothers and sisters, when I told you that I could not pray for that individual, I admit to you, I was in the flesh. Because I just refused. I held on to everything I had until the Lord, he had to kept, he kept cornering me and kept cornering me to finally I said, okay. And even when I started, I still didn't want to do it. I still didn't want to forgive and to pray for that individual. Still didn't want to do it, but I just started anyway. So I'm like, okay, all right, all right, Lord. And you probably said, well, well, brother, if your heart was not in it, then you shouldn't have started. I hear what you're saying, but oftentimes one of the things that gets our feet on the path of righteousness is first to start walking. You have, you, we must far, first start taking the step first. 
If you say, well, no, I'll never get there. Well, of course you'll never get there if you stay where you are. So we must first take the first step. And it may be a short one. It may not be a, a long stride. And, and sometimes you may end up stepping backwards. But we must have the strength, the gumption, and the courage to keep moving forward. So the one thing that requires first is open your mouth and let the Lord speak through you. But you say, well, wait a minute. The scripture says, uh, doesn't it say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Well, it does say that. But understand the context of what's going on. Understand what Jesus says about that in Matthew 5, 38. Of course, in Exodus 21, you can read the, the correlated passage there. But read how Jesus explains that in Matthew 5. There have been some horrific things happening to people all over our city. All over the globe. But we must learn to pray for our city. So our obedience to the Lord and thoughtfulness of others, it directly benefits us. Jeremiah 29, 7 again, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In its shalom you will find your shalom. You see that? When you pray to the Lord on behalf of your city, that when it begins to do well, that it's also going to benefit you. Do you reject this as being relegated to the law? Thereby thinking we don't need to obey because we're under grace? While it's true we're not under the law, we are under the law of love. Matthew 22, uh, 37, 39 says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving people is our greatest mandate from the Lord. And it is timeless and crosses all generations in all cultures. But remember that the prophet Jeremiah was not simply speaking about the law. He was speaking of how the Lord expected for them to live their life. So what are some of the benefits of obedience and desiring peace and goodness in our city? Uh, here, here's one. I believe that we will not be as paranoid in the city. We will not be as paranoid. In any urban area or, or some nations, people become totally paranoid, especially when they encounter people who are not like them. It's important for us to understand because most of the world is fast becoming urbanized, right? Uh, most of the world is fast becoming cityfied. What is a city? Well, Ed Glacier, he describes a city as the absence of, of physical space between people. So in other words, we're kind of living on top of each other in a city. And most of the time it happens within the direct urban area and oftentimes within the suburban area as well. We're living really, really close. Some of the suburbs, people are living really, really close together. In other words, we're just living on top of each other. But also a blessing for the cities. Uh, they, they are known for their diversity. Cities are known for their stability, believe it or not. Their productivity and also their creativity. 
You try to even have a ministry such as this, you take this out to a rural area and see if this is possible in the middle of farm country. Uh uh-uh. uh. Because you don't have you don't have the creativity, you have everybody, you have people sing and everybody playing the guitar. That's what it is. They will sing and play the guitar and all this other stuff, all these different folks that we have coming in and out, even even of our ministry, it simply would not be uh, uh, happening in farm country because it is not diverse there. Large portion of people, they are moving gradually and gradually more into the cities. Where else will you find your musicians and your musicals and your artists your dancers, your operas, and your major academic institutions for the most part. Uh, oftentimes you will find that in the heart of the city. Cities are where people are, who are made in the image of God uh, are living in their giftings on a large scale. There's a larger pool of individuals. Uh, Tim Keller says this. He says, cities have more of the image of God per square inch than any other place on earth. So because of our proximity to one another, we should eventually learn to understand one another better. Second, I believe that like begets like. And as a person with a more loving heart towards others, you will attract more people with the same type of heart. Thirdly, we're able to get on with our lives. Jeremiah 29, verse 5 and 6. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not de- decrease, he says. In other words, what are you waiting on? Move on with your life. Faithful living is not just going to church and studying your Bible. Faithful living is, is not just uh, 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 going to work. Faithful living is building houses, planting gardens, getting married, having babies, and then do what? Repeat. So while we live where we live, we must walk in obedience. And this gets back to the Lord's original mandate of being kingdom-minded. What is being kingdom-minded? Being fruitful and multiply. And for those who live in urban areas as we do, this means we must seek the welfare or the shalom of our city, and we must pray to the Lord on its behalf, and then as we do so, we will also find our blessings as well. Seek the welfare of your city. Pray for your city. It starts with us. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we want to thank you so much for your word today. We want to thank you, Lord God, because you have brought us through so much, Lord, and we have seen so much. But Father, we just say be glorified in our life, in our heart, in our homes, in our jobs, Lord, in our church, be glorified. We want to thank you today for the magnificent work that you are pouring out into us and you, how you're changing us into our image, how you're changing our mindset, how you're calling us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you again, Lord God, for all of that. Oh, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that's within me. 
Bless your holy name. Is there anyone in this place today that does not know Christ? We want to lead you to him. Is there someone in here that does not have that relationship?